Good morning, everyone. Sorry, I have announcements here. I'm not going to preach from the announcement sheet, okay? Those of you who are visiting with us, we're glad you're here, and um, we'll be uh, welcoming you again at the end, too. But if you're joining us, we're starting and have started a series in the book of Hebrews. And if you have a, a no Bible of your own, the black one in the seat, you can pull out. And you can turn in that Bible to page 11, what is it? I had it written down. Here we go, 1196, just to have it right. If you don't know your way around in the New Testament, and some of us who are newer at this uh, need a little bit of coaching on that, just like I had to before I knew my way around the Scripture. Our title today is Mission Accomplished. Sounds good, doesn't it? Huh? It means we're done? Okay, let's go home. <laughs> Mission accomplished. We're talking about the book of Hebrews, which brings better things to the forefront. There's a lot of good things in the world, but there are better things that uh, believers are interested in together. And our key verse is verse one, chapter 1, verse 3b. I told you last week, b means it's the second part of the verse, so you can find your way around. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mission accomplished. When he had made purification of sins. That's what we were singing about. You did pretty good. Almost like Presbyterians. That was, uh, that was good. And uh, singing away on, on rejoice the Lord is king. A major task had to be done, Right? A major task. Uh, the world was a mess. How many of you read the Daily Bible with us? Or part of it at least. You got at least through Genesis, right? And uh, do you remember the first time God looked at the earth and said, Oi, what a mess. And how did he solve it? Not the first time. Yeah, a major cleansing project. Yikes! Is there a better thing? Is there a better way? Yes, there is. And it is the work of God rescuing us from our sins. There is a better way. So as we think about that, uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. I feel like uh, this morning we should pray and ask God's help. That's always appropriate. Welcome back, Kim. See you sitting there. Hi, you look nice. Let's pray. I'm just going to come clean, Lord. I wouldn't have bothered if I were you. Looking around, uh, the mess that humanity has made of this wonderful planet and gift that you've given us, what we've done to ourselves. Look what we've done to the world is a famous pop song. And Lord, it's the truth. Maybe for a righteous man, someone would be willing to die. Maybe. It happens once in a while. People lay their lives down for others. But Lord, looking at the planet and looking at what we've done, looking at myself when I'm honest, if we're honest, if we're in tune with reality, we know who we really are. We know what we're like. We know the secrets. We know the, the skeletons in the closets. 
we know the evil that we've done. I want to thank you that you set your affection on us and rescued us. Because it was going to honor and glorify your son who took the task on and accomplished his mission by the purification of sins. Thank you that that blood still effectively works this very hour. That if we belong to you, we can walk without shame. We can walk without fear of what's in the closet. We can put it out in the light, splatter it with the blood, and be clean and free. It's kind of grieving to me, Lord, uh, when I see so many believers in our community that are laboring under shame and hiding and guilt. And it doesn't have to be that way. The gospel is liberating. Thank you for the freedom that you give us. Thank you for the cleansing of the blood. And it's in the name of Jesus today that we ask for your help. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds. Carry your servant along because I have great limitations. And I ask for your spirit to quicken your gifting and speak truth and life into the hearts of men and women, whether they're your children yet or whether they're not and yet to be. We commend ourselves to your grace today. Help us. In the great name of Jesus, we pray and all of God's people said, amen Amen and amen. So one of the things that we constantly deal with is why all that blood, right? And we constantly wrestle with it. I hear this complaint all the time. Why does God insist on this? Isn't he cruel? His rules are so mean. So I was searching a little bit found a new illustration that I have not ever come across that came out of Greek culture. If you ever watch all those cool movies of the Greeks, you know, and their boldness, the Spartans fighting and all of that, there was one Greek portion of culture, and uh, there was a king who was known to be very rigid with his rules. So I'm going to read this to you because it will help us understand something about what has taken place. I've said many times... God's rules are not because he arbitrarily made them up. They're because they're tied into reality, the way the real world works. If you jump off a cliff, the rules of the world mean you go down. (laughs) Somebody just fell into the Grand Canyon, you may have seen. It's very sad, right? I've been there multiple times, and you look at it, it almost takes your breath away if you've ever been there. The principle, the law of gravity works It's not unjust, it just works. And that's part of what's going on with what God has made has to function within his rules because his rules are tied to reality. It's simply the way it works. So some of the Greeks were notable for their orderly governments. Zeleucus flourished about 500 B.C. His government over the Locrians was severe but just how to bring order, like the cleanup of New York City a couple of decades back, right? Tight. In one of his decrees, he forbade the use of wine unless it was prescribed as medicine. Yeah, I got one from my doctor. I got a... (laughs) In another, he ordered that all adulterers should be punished with the loss of both their eyes. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) 
So it was a very orderly, tight-run system, you know. I, uh, this is just an aside. It's kind of funny. When uh, my wife and I were, uh, had left up north and we were wondering where God was taking us before we realized we were coming here, and we're glad we're here. Amen. <laughs> you had me worried there for a second. Just let me know whenever the time's up, okay? <laughs> I was sitting with a brother who, who was representing our mission. I think it was World Venture. He was a World Venture rep, and he said, I've got an interim pastorate in Singapore for you. He said, it's a great city. You can't even spit on the sidewalk. Can't use bad language. The police control is so tight. If they speak English, it's the safest city in the world. And you can pastor them. They're going to pay you to do it. It was a two-year gig. We had a grandchild in the oven. Couldn't go. Oh. Would have been awesome. But that's the kind of city and kind of rule that Zeleucus had. So adulterers had to have both their eyes poked out. If you don't see it, you don't want it, right? That's how it works. Get this. Boy, if this doesn't go home, strike home, I don't know what can. When his own son became subject to this penalty. Oops. Maybe because he was a ruler's kid, he felt a little entitled like other great pop idols we have that think they can do whatever they want. When his son became subject to this penalty, the father, in order to maintain the authority of the laws, but to show parental leniency, dare I say love, shared the penalty with his son by ordering one of his own eyes thrust out and only one of his sons. Aren't you glad you didn't live back then or in other cultures that still do things like that? However, here's the point. He took some of the penalty to spare his son. In this way, the majesty of his government was maintained and his own character as a just and righteous sovereign was magnified in the eyes of his subject. And how would it not be? Wow is right. Wow. That doesn't hold a candle to what God did for us. Do you see? The law had to be maintained. It's reality. But he entered into our suffering with us. I have quoted from John Stott, The Cross of Christ, multiple times. Let me read it again. Our problem is we don't understand reality, and we human beings do not understand the, the, the gigantic weight of our sin. We don't get it. That's why we judge God. Well, how can, how, it's like we don't look in the mirror. It's like, how can you even talk? Here's what it says, uh, some of his writings here. So then, the cross of Christ is the event in which God makes known his holiness, which cannot be violated by sin, you understand, and his love simultaneously. I'll take an eye and you take one. The difference in our case is we don't take any of it. He takes all of it. The cross is the place where the love of God and the holiness of God are seen in one event in absolute manner. It's summed up this way. It consists in the combination of inflexible righteousness with its penalties and transcendent love. His righteousness and his love. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know that? 
That's what happened. That's what is pictured in the cross. That's what we're here to celebrate today when we gather around the table. When he had committed, when he had finished, purification for sin. Mission accomplished on our behalf. Who was it exactly that made purification? The justification, the justice, and the love of God simultaneously revealed on the cross. Who was that person on the cross? Who is it? Well, yeah, his name is Jesus, but there's more to it. And so what I want to do today, those of you who are note takers, I took a rebuke last week. I did. Somebody said, you're using these words. We don't know how to spell them. Put them on the screen. So I'm going to put them on the screen in a minute. I see people shaking their heads. So you scholar types, I'm going to try to bless you today and make sure I explain it all right, and put it out there. So if you have your notes and you want to follow along, mission accomplished, better things, he is first and foremost the revealer of God. He's the one that came to reveal God to us. I have a short didactic section. I'm going to go rapid fire through. This is like the cliff notes. And the reason I'm doing that is all through the book of Hebrews, we're going to come back to these themes over and over again. It's going to be unpacked and unpacked. And so I don't need to stay on this one thing too long, but I wanted to give you a little, a little survey, if you will, of who it was that made purification for our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. First of all, last week I said I was going to give you a short didactic section. Remember that? So I got the word. There it is. That's how I explained. That means a teaching section. Most Bible passages are one of two kinds. They're didactic. They're teaching you information. Or they're the next word, hortative. Huh? Put an X in front of that. Exhort? Yeah. They're either teaching facts or they're exhorting, challenging you, right? Encouraging you. Uh, saying, come on, buck up. Or get up. Or rest in him. Trust him, have, you know, accept his peace, whatever. It's an exhortation. That's the third word. And uh, there was one other word that I brought up last time, explained at length. I won't park on it again. I hope you all remember it. If not, ask your neighbor who was here last week, and he'll tell you exactly what I said last week. Exactly. And that was the word total depravity. Remember that? The whole being, the whole part of mankind, mind, emotion, will, my choices, my emotions, and my thinking are tainted. doesn't mean I'm the worst person in the world. They're all tainted by this problem, this infection called sin. It, it skews my choices, my thinking, my feelings. Have you ever trusted your feelings wrong? Of course you have. Of course, we all have. How many, how many of you got rejection complex like me? I grew up with it, you know? You go into a room... Five people are over there with Mrs. Horovitz, see, and they're talking to each other. And they're mad. And you look and you go, they're talking about me. Right? Come on. And they're not. But you think so. Don't trust your emotions. Not every time, right? So far, I'm boring you all. Okay, so here we go. So we're going to revisit all of these things as we fire through. Let me just read. If you're open still to that page, 1196... God, after he swore, this is how the book begins. And by the way, those who comment on this book say it's one of the most excellent, lovely portions of Greek written in the New Testament. Okay, it really is. 
The language is very lofty. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us, how? In his son. He's the revealer, the revelation of God. God in the flesh, whom he appointed heir of all things, whom he also, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Everyone said amen. amen. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. We're coming into a whole section after this. See, i got to get through this. You can see why it's going to take to like 2030 for me to finish this. So I want to get these four verses out of the way, and then we come into a section on angelology. Ooh. Nobody believes in angels today, do they? Oh, yeah, they believe in all kinds of strange things about angels, but we'll talk about that as we go. So in this portion is a lot of theology about Jesus. So here's two more words. Theology. What is that? Two Greek words. Theos is the word for God. Logos is the word for word. So figure it out. It's the word about... You pass. It's the word about God. Simple. Add any other name in the front with logos and you have the study of or the word about whatever it is. Pneumatology, about the spirit. Harmartiology, about sin. Anthropology, everybody recognizes that one. The word about man. I wonder if they give you the full word about man. I don't know. Anyway, here's what we're looking at today. Christology. Guess what that is? You got it. Okay. So that's what we're on. And that's what this whole four verses is talking about. The incarnation of Jesus. The very best revelation of God. You can't, you can't get a better version of God showing up in human form. You can't. This is it. It's the best. The only way you could see God as man. This is the best choice. God in the flesh. He invaded time and space on our behalf. So here's my point I want to make. I want to go through some quick didactics on this subject because a few weeks ago I let people down by not finishing the whole sermon and showing something about Bible study. So those of you who are interested in teaching the word to others or you want to grow for yourself how to study the word carefully, there's a couple of principles we need to know. One of them was always look in a context. We said that a while back. The writer is writing to somebody for a reason. You need to pay attention to that and not just pull it out of the air and say, oh, I think it means that. No, there's a reason. But there's another principle. Scripture always interprets Scripture. So you find a weird verse in the, in the New Testament, and there is one, like, why else are people baptized for the dead? Huh? And we make a doctrine on that, like our Mormon friends have done. There's no other cor correlating scripture to explain what that is. It doesn't even say whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. He didn't make a comment on it. We don't know. might have been an aberration practice, for all we know. But people build a doctrine because it's taken out of its context and they have not compared Scripture with Scripture. But what I'd like to do for a minute is compare Scripture with Scripture to show that what we see in these first four verses in the book of Hebrews is throughout the Bible. We could spend hours on how many verses correlate to what I'm about to speak on. All right? But we're just going to look at one for each. So he is the revealer of God. How? 
creator and sustainer of the universe. First word is creator. Here's what the verse says in the first four verses. If I could put that next one up. Through whom also, verse 2, he made what? He made everything. By the way, the world cosmos means the cosmos. It's not just where we live on planet Earth. It's everything. He made everything, the universe. Oh, how about that? First John, anybody recognize this passage? In the beginning is the very first words out of John, John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was... Some translations will say a God, bad Greek. The person who came up with that didn't even know Greek, but faked it. I'm serious. It's the truth. The word was with God and the word was divine is exactly what it's saying, right? The very nature of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came. Who made the world, by the way? God. How come this is saying in the beginning was the word? Who's the word? Yeah, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. Nothing came into being that has come into being. So what does that leave? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) So everything that has been created was created by who? Yeah, by who? Who? Yeah, Jesus was involved in... We always say God created the heavens and the earth. We know that. Steve, you the man. I got two questions. Ladies first. Those of you who are visiting, I take questions from the floor. Can I? Oh, thank you. Who said that? Mr. Podcast just saved my bacon. Thank you. Um, By the way, I can't imagine the early... People say, is that right? That seems awfully irreligious. I can't imagine the New Testament communities gathered around a teacher with no Bible in their hands not asking questions. I can't imagine it. So maybe some of our religion is a little... I'm a, I, boy, I'm so nasty. Anyway. So, so I know the word is Jesus. Where does that come from? Is it translated in the Greek something that means... Yeah, the word is logos. The word... So in the actual text where it says the word, it says... Logos. Yeah, the, when it says it like this, it's capital. And the reason it is is because it's referring to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Whenever God reveals himself, it's often through the person of Jesus. Are you waving at me? I didn't repeat the question. What was the question again? It says the word. And where does the word come from? How do we know uh, that does mean Jesus? Yeah, because the word, the word is logos. Oh, See how much I still have to learn even at my age? I have to remember to put words on the screen. I have to remember to repeat the question. I have to remember to get dressed in the morning and not come here without clothes on. That'd be bad. Anyway, so how do we know the, the, the word, word? She was asking about the word in the text. It's the word logos, okay, which is simply the word for word or doctrine, you know, theology. Whenever we're talking about God revealing himself, it's a reference to Jesus often being the one who reveals. Very likely, as we go through angelology, and I want to park on this right now, uh, whenever you see in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord, it's often assumed, and I think it probably is, that it's Jesus' pre-incarnational manifestations. Okay? That might help. Was yours the same question? Oh, well. God created everything in the world. That includes the 
Yeah, before they were bad. Everything that was created was good. Then there was a rebellion. Oh, thank you. I'm kind of hopeless, so after this, no questions. Anyway, uh, the question was, if God created everything, that includes the bad things? The answer is correct, except he didn't create them bad. Okay? There was a spiritual rebellion with Satan, and then man jumped on the bandwagon. And everything went haywire. Yeah, well, I get off on that one, so thank you. Good question. All right, so here we go. In the beginning was, where'd that go? Oh, you don't want me to get in trouble anymore. Thank you. He was with God in the beginning. All things came into being by him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that was made, right? So he is involved directly in creation. But he doesn't just create and go away. Anybody ever heard of the deists? Yeah, if you've studied church history or American history, uh, some of those people in, in churches in the past getting filled with unbelief, decided, you know, God's really not involved with us anymore. And I get, I get how people sometimes think that, right? Ever, where's God? Have you, have you ever said, where are you? You know, this would be a good time to help me out. Ever been there? But they decided that God made that. There was a God, but we can't know anything about him. He made us like a big clock, wound it up, put it on the shelf, and then he went on vacation. But that's not true, because here's what the scripture says. The son sustains his creation. In other words, he's the living God. There's another verse in that um, opening passage, if we could put that up. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He's alive and he's active. By the way, that has implications for our trust factor. Is he in charge? Is there really an accident? Or is he sovereign over all the affairs of men, and is he using them for our good? Is Romans chapter 8 telling you the truth? All things work together for good to those who love God. Is it telling you the truth? You have to settle that yourself. I can't download that, that faith and trust into your spirit. You've got to ask him for it. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Let's look at it from the book of Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. I'm going to come back to that. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Are we repeating that? Yeah. Visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Just so you know, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities are talking about spiritual rulers. It's not just physical rulers on the earth. It's talking about angelic majesties. We'll unpack that at a later time dominions or rulers, authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things. What? Oh, don't overlook that little phrase. He was before all things came into being. Therefore, he can't be a created thing. We read that word and it says firstborn. We think, oh, he was, he was the firstborn of God. Firstborn means first position, absolute authority. That means right-hand person. Three people, three persons in one. It's been the the confession of the church for 2,000 years. Wars have been fought over it. All things have been created by him, for him. He is before all things. And what? In him, all things, literally in the Greek, hang together. I remember remember when I first heard this and uh, they were unpacking the atom. I have friends down on Long Island that are scientists working at, what, what's the name of that area? Brookhaven. And trying to find the God particle. What holds it all together? 
still haven't totally figured it out. Can you just quickly clarify? You said firstborn is... It's not about... It's not... Yeah, it's not a word that means you're the first child out of 12. No, no, no. It simply means he's got ultimate. He's got an authoritative right hand. You, the word firstborn is can be translated as unique, unique, rather than just you know one out of twelve kids. So that kind of, like the oldest. It's not limited to that. So it means unique. All right. So he, all things hold together. And one more thing about him. Look up at the word image. The Greek word is anybody know? Yes, sir. Who had that? Twelve points, Vince. Icon. What's that? Racking them up, baby. I'm going to increase your pay. Icon. I, I was thinking about this this morning. We all know what icons are, right? In some churches, you have icons of some of the saints, right? We have a little... I don't know why we kept it. We have a statue of... Um, St. Francis. You can always tell it's St. Francis. Yes, we have a statue of St. Francis. Just, just deal with it, okay? So we liked him out in our garden, and when we moved, we said, oh, let's take him with us. We, got, we, we inherited him from family or something. And you can always tell it's St. Francis because he's got animals all over him, right? You know it's him. Certain icons, the visual is so clear, you can't miss what it's talking about. He's the icon of who? The invisible God. How many of you have cell phones? Come on, don't lie. You all have cell phones. Well, most of you do. Anybody not? I, now, now, this is a question. Anybody not have a cell phone? Wow, a resistance to the modern world can be done. I am inspired this morning. I don't know if, if you're inspired by me, but I just got inspired by you. That's awesome. Our cell phones are going in the john, man. I'm whew, gone. Anyway, icon. On your cell phone, if you want to place a call, there's a little green icon that has this shape like this. What is it? What is that? How do you know? I haven't seen one of those in forever. Anybody under 10 goes, what the heck is that thing? Am I right or wrong? But, but to this day, it still is the picture. It's the icon of making a call, right? Jesus is the icon of God, the picture of God. And here's the way it's explained in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The word representation is the word from which we get character. Now, I'm not talking about me being a character. Stop laughing at me. And, uh, but it's character as in you know a person's character or you know who it is. The word means you ever do, uh, when, we, when we were younger, this, got, this was popular for a while back in the 70s. When you were sending letters, you'd, you'd light a little candle thing and drip wax on. Remember that? And you'd have, an, you'd have a character. That's the word, representation. You'd stamp it, and it looked exactly like it. 
That's the word. A description of God. Okay? So Jesus is the effulgence of his glory, like the rays of the sun from the sun, and the exact character of his nature. And I think there's one. Is there another verse there? Yeah. Whom he appointed heir of all things, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The radiance of his glory. Appointed heir of all things, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Uh, You have a question, and I'll have to repeat it. So make it good. At the end of verse 2, in the King James Version, it mentions the worlds. Yes. Can you read, read the passage? Yes. The definition, how would you have to use that? that? Yeah, that's a different word. Uh, that's the aeons, ion, like we get e- eons from. <laughs> what happened? You know, this is going to be a long morning. I'm going to have to move along. So. The question was, how come it says he made the worlds? The, the Greek word in one of the translations for the worlds, like you have cosmos is one that we translate world. Uh, aeons means the ages, the ages upon the ages. So when the scripture talks about Jesus creating the worlds, it's not just the physical stuff that makes up the universe. It's time and space. It was more scientific than we realized, right? Because now we talk about time and space. And both of those are included in God's creation. Well, you know, in the world we live today, they say world worlds. You know, like somebody's on another planet. Yeah, worlds upon worlds, worlds upon worlds. Okay, so I'm going to have to hold questions or we'll never get to communion. And that's more important than me. So, ready? The next thing. Uh, I have one more verse I wanted to show you. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did he do that? By making purification for sin, he accomplished his mission. This is Philippians 2, which starts in the passage of chapter 2. It says that even though he was in appearance, he was God. In, In nature, he was God. He set that aside in order to humble himself, and it goes on. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was willing to have his eye removed. Therefore, also, because he accomplished his mission, and he deserved, the, he deserved first position anyway, but having accomplished that mission in human form now, he is highly exalted by God and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You've heard that before, right? He's received a name better than the angels. He's inherited a more excellent name. He's got the name above every name. There's no other name given under heaven whereby men and women must be saved. And guess what, friends? We need to be saved. I'll probably save this for another time, but I almost titled my sermon, Whatever Became of Sin. You have to be around a while. Dr. Carl Menninger wrote a book years ago called Whatever Happened to Sin because it's a blessing to know that something is sin 
so that you can get freed and forgiven and cleansed and delivered. Otherwise, you just live in it, and it kills you, and it will. So better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Oh, let me read something to you. Being the heir of the universe, we're going to come back to this another time, but sometimes it's helpful to think outside of our little box, right? Anybody agree with that? A couple of years ago, we asked you to read through the knowledge of the holy by A.W. Tozer. It's talking about our woes. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. And one of the ways I'd like us to do that today, I'm going to meddle a little bit because we are so stuck on ourselves and sure that it's all about us. That's why Jesus came, but that's not all true. G.H. Lang, writing in his epistle to the Hebrews, said, Heir of all things, here is shown the primary reason why the universe was brought into being. It exists that the Father may show his love for the Son and heir. The Son sinned. Now, now our, our Savior didn't, but Zeleucus, his love for the Son, while still being just, he manifests both things. God is showing his love for the Son and the heir. All other reasons are subordinate to and included in this, including the fact that we get blessed with eternal life. The son is honored. Thank God he is, because we're included in him. And that's why his affection is set upon us, to honor the son. He glorifies himself in the process. All other reasons are subordinate to and included in this. The son explained that the basic ground for the working of the father is that all may honor the son even as they honor the father. That's his words, not mine. Here's a little bit of an exhortation. Here's a hortative passage. Ready? Hortative. Everybody remember that? Okay. He writes, All the universe belongs to the Son. I am part of the universe. Therefore, I belong to the Son. Am, uh, here's the question, am I then giving to him his proprietary rights or am I with Satan robbing him of them? Ooh, ow. Who wants to read a commentary like that? It's convicting. I don't like that stuff. Okay. You like that? Or you want to hear it? Again. Do I have to repeat that question? <laughs> Could you read that again? That was a question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so bad. All the universe belongs to the sun. I am part of the universe, therefore I belong to the sun. Whether I'm cooperating or not, that's secondary. I belong to the sun. Am I then giving to him his proprietary rights, or am I with Satan robbing him of them? Wow. Pretty good, right? Last thing. Mission accomplished. He stepped down into the world to clean up the mess that we had made. So Jesus is, in fact, the Redeemer of God. 
That's the second part of the sermon in your notes. If you want to take notes, this will be very quick and simple. Three verses that corroborate the redemption work of God, giving, starting with a very graphic picture. First, the reference, when he made purification of sins. You can't get around the fact that the entire Old Testament people, their worship was surrounded by bloodshed. Can't get around it. So I, I just started over in the Bible, right? I'm, I'm reading my old uh, King James that you guys did for me. Uh, Corey and Jess, where's she, she working? And um, I'm reading through it. It's getting so old now. You ever had those old Bible pages just start ripping and you're, I'm trying to get through it without damaging it. And I'm reading through, and it's, it's reference after reference after reference. If a person sins this way, if a person sins that way, if a person doesn't realize they've sinned. Anybody ever not realize you sinned? Whatever it is, bring a sacrifice of some sort. And I love the fact that God is fair. He's gracious. He knows some people couldn't afford a lamb or an ox or one of those things, and so a little bird will do. Sometimes if you can't afford that, even food would do. It's in there. And uh, so you bring it, and there would be a sacrifice, and there would be the shedding of blood. This is not a pretty picture. There's a reason for it. Some of I, I know some of our people keep chickens and, and get eggs and all of that, and I've had people in my church in the past say, uh, these, these chickens are getting all... I just don't have the heart. You know, they're like pets. They're like pets. Can, can you do something about that? And I went, sure. So I did. And I want to tell you, it just goes everywhere. <laughs> There's a reason that God had this system. In fact... The Passover lamb was taken into the home a week before. You know, the kids play with it. You know what happens, right? All of it. And then you've got to take it out to the tabernacle, and, and blood goes everywhere. There's a reason. God is trying to get a point across. So the command went like this, with every reference to sacrifice. The priest does the business. He does the job. He shall also do with the bull or any other animal, as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus shall he do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them. There has to be payment. And they shall be forgiven. They knew they were forgiven because blood was shed. Hebrews reinforces that in the next verse. According to the law, one may almost say, and the reason it says almost is that there are a few exceptions that cleansing in the Old Testament didn't require bloodshed. Sometimes you could use water or whatever. But primarily, the picture of forgiveness of sin was surrounded by this graphic subject. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why? Because... It represents life being poured out. As that great stage play original, they put on film, Dracula. Bella Lugosi says to the man who came to visit him, Mr. Renfield, the blood is the life, Mr. Renfield. And he says, uh, uh yeah. A little nervous, and he should be. <laughs> the blood represented Life itself. 
So without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Eye for eye, life for life, I have broken the cosmic laws of the universe. I stepped off the edge of the Grand Canyon and expected the law of gravity to be suspended. Guess what? It didn't happen. Death happened. Here's the New Testament version of what we're talking about. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He brought purification for sin. Mission accomplished. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, victorious. Our lives are forfeit. He interposed his precious blood. I love this from Come Thou Fount. You know the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I have come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. I hope you're sitting here today and hoping to safely arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger. This is the old language. Interposed his precious blood made purification for your sins mission accomplished and it still works some of you uh, are probably Indiana Jones fans the uh, last crusade you remember they're trying to find the actual chalice and that mean guy gets the wrong one and you know what happened to him ah the cup of Christ (laughs) fantastic graphics on that one right he got what he deserved but uh, Indiana Jones figures out no it's a carpenter's mug well all of that's wrong anyway because it was all borrowed so it could have been a nice silver chalice we don't know but the point is They got their hands on this thing because in it was eternal life. If we could just get our hands on that and drink from it, we'd have eternal life. Today, we're gathering at the table that represents exactly that through the blood of Jesus, the purification of sin. Let me ask you, if literally his blood could be kept and drunk right now, and it would give you eternal life. If I walked out with this, would you chase after me to get it? Would you really? Some of you might. The offer of eternal life is in front of us continually. Have you received Jesus' blood and purification for yourself? It's not automatic. You're not born with it. You have to invite him in and receive him. And this morning as we gather at this table, I'm going to ask people to come and get ready for the distribution so that we can celebrate the purification of sin that Jesus did on our behalf. Listen, if you're listening to me this morning and you have never trusted Jesus, you all listening? You can do it right where you are. You can ask Christ into your life. Ask him to forgive your sin pledge your allegiance to him to follow him because that's who Christians really are and we'd love to talk with you after about what decision you made but then you're welcome to worship him in the sacrifice that he has made